Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Thank you guys for being here for this special edition of the Writer's Panel. Um, we are sitting uh, with Christopher Kaiser who is former WGA president. WGA West. WGA West president, that's right. That's an important distinction. Right. Um, from 2011 to 2015, is that right? I think that's right. I can, yes, okay. I think that's right. <laughs> um, and we are here with you because you have all the answers. <laughs> We're counting on you uh, to help us through, but let's introduce our guests as well. Uh, Marquis, starting with you, just tell us who you are and some of the shows you've worked on as well. Ah, um, Marquis Jackson. Um, I'm currently a co-producer on Rosewood. Um, I've been staffed on House, Battle Creek, and Lone Star with Chris back in 2010, I think. Yeah. Um, Deirdre Mangan, I'm baby writer. Uh, I'm ESC on iZombie currently, and before that I was on Do No Harm, otherwise known as Dr. Face Hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you guys for helping me through this, because I have lots of questions for Chris, and I'm sure you guys too as WGA members of, you know, whether it's been one or two years, whether it's been ten years, um, let's kind of start at a very basic level. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've covered this on the podcast before, but can you just tell people briefly what having a union does for writers? Sure, of course. It's a big question, but... <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, well, the union's responsible for things like what's in our minimum basic agreement. That the minimums that writers are paid every week, the residual formulas they get, working conditions, things like that, pension and health have been gained by the, the union. The purpose of a union is to use the power of collective action. Almost every writer knows when he or she is trying to negotiate a loan against a big company, they're, they're enormously disadvantaged. And we are ad advantaged when we work together. So that's, that's the big idea, collective, collective action. Unfortunately, of course, we're living in a world in which unions um, have less power than they once did. Much of the, many of the gains um, that led to a kind of vibrant American middle class in the 20th century came because of the power of unions. And a lot of the stagnation of the American middle class can be blamed, at least in part, on the 
the fact that union power has waned. What's lucky is that the Writers Guild, writers, have a, a powerful, active union um, that works for them. And many of the things that we cherish uh, take care of us over yeah. the course of our career have been gained by the struggles of that union. Can you talk about um, just in that in that period during which you were the WGAW president, mm-hmm. uh, that was the time of enormous change in the industry. I mean, I feel like we sort of saw that coming during the 08 strike, uh, but the things streaming and these other channels popping up didn't really come to fruition until that five-year period. That's, that's right. That's exactly right. So we lived through in that period the change between what was predicted by the 27-2008 uh, strike, in fact, which was that much of our work either originally or in reuse was going to move to streaming um, and saw that actually happen. The whole era now of peak TV happened more or less between that time and now. And many of the issues that we're dealing with now just began to surface during the time when I was was the president of the Guild. Mm-hmm. We dealt with them a little bit in the last negotiation. Uh, and we can talk about that more later. But it was just the tip of the iceberg back then. And now we're really seeing what it means to have uh, a, a completely different television landscape than had dominated the world, our world, for decades. Yeah. Um, and I want to, just to get a baseline from you guys, uh, tell me how long you've been in the union and what is your relationship with the WGA? Uh, well, for me, I've been in the Guild for eight years, mm-hmm. um, and this is really, for me, it's just it's a basic kind of relationship. It's like they send me the envelopes, I fill out the form, <laughs> and I pay my dues. and You, you know, get I your screeners. To, yeah, I get my screeners, <laughs> and I go to different events along the way, but I think um, this is the, I was an assistant the last time, mm-hmm. um, the writers, well, the new writers went on strike last time, and so... This time I actually have a better understanding of kind of the issues at play, and and it, it applies to me a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but I have I think probably just like the average kind of relationship with 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 the guild in terms of my interaction with them. Which is, I think, I mean, and again, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Like that base level interaction is sort of a huge thing that took years to get to, where like we do have a pension and we do have a health care, and as working writers, we almost don't need to think about it. Right. Yeah, I yeah that's that's something I recognize in that in the base level interaction is the fact that we have we have amazing health care and we have minimums when we work on a show. Uh, granted, we're all most of us are getting paid minimum more now mm-hmm. percentage wise. I guess more people are making the minimum, but um, that's something. Otherwise, I think we would have to negotiate individually. And being a chick. Uh, I'm pretty happy that I uh, get the same minimum as every other person in the room. But, um, yeah, I've been in the Guild for five years, I think, mm-hmm. five seasons, um, or four. But, yeah, I until this year, um, until this year I wasn't really awake politically in any way. <laughs> Not in any way, but, like, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, now I just signed up to be a contract captain. That's okay. great. So. That's um, great. Yeah, what what does that involve? Do you know yet? <laughs> um, well, it was uh, it was kind of a mix-up where I was supposed to be the show captain and then someone else wanted to be a show, whatever. Mm-hmm. So now I'm contract captain. I need to find a flock okay. um, of writers who aren't on a show right now or who might be feature writers and just keep them informed, go to these meetings so that they have a point person essentially to uh, pass uh, guild negotiation mm-hmm. information down to. And if... You know, it comes to a strike to organize that as well, my sure. team. Yeah, I'm finding with these negotiations, um, communication has been so much better than it was 10 years ago. Uh, and again, I was sort of in the same boat. You were, Marquis, but 
I feel like I'm hearing from a lot more people inside the WGA who know what's going on and are able to communicate it to even me, who I haven't even been on a show in a year, uh, so I'm a little bit outside of it, but I'm still getting information. Um, Do you have a contract, Captain? I don't. <laughs> Would you like I don't. to be in my flock? I'm taking offers right now. I'm taking offers. We'll see what you have. Um, Chris, uh, okay, so as of this recording being released, uh, the guild negotiators are back in the room uh, with the studios and networks to talk about it. This will come out on Monday. Um, what is your involvement with this negotiation? I'm one of the co-chairs. You are one of the co-chairs. Yes. Okay, so you're in all of these meetings. Yes, you're, exactly. you're yeah. one of the people trying to get across what we'd like to get across. Can you talk about what those things are? No, I'm sorry. Yes, of course. <laughs> and I, I mean, I know there's a lot of them, but what, what, you know, yeah. like, what are the, the bullet points? Yeah, yeah, so I'll talk about that. So um, here's the background of where we are in this negotiation. So the last 10 years or so have been the best 10 years in the history of the business for the companies for whom we work. Uh, in the last 10 years, they've doubled their profits. They had a record $51 billion of profits last year off of the work that we do. They had a record profit the year before of $49 billion. The big reason for that is television, the growth, the extraordinary growth in television. Um, these new platforms and an expanding middle class around the world, both of which sort of developed alongside each other, and now the product that we write can be delivered to a huge percentage of the world's population almost any time they want to watch it. Um, that make, that's, and the companies have monetized that. That's a really good thing, by the way. It's a good thing for us. No one's unhappy about that. They're doing extremely well off of this, um, this new era of peak TV. At the same time, however, writers have not been doing as well as they used to do. In the last two years, for example, uh, writer-producer salaries have gone down 23 percent. Um, there are a bunch of reasons for that, and but they are at the heart of what this negotiation is about. So the biggest thing is, you guys, uh, we all know that the old landscape of 22-episode seasons that dominated the broadcast world for decades has evolved into a new landscape, predominantly short seasons. But two-thirds of all shows right now, even broadcast shows, are producing 8, 10, 12 episodes, fewer episodes than before. Well, here's the problem. I'll just use myself as an example. Mm -hmm. In the days when Marky and I worked together uh, on a network, if we were lucky, we got 22 episodes of a television show. We got 22 fees, episodic fees. Writers know that. And it took us about a year to do that, a little bit less than a year, maybe 44 weeks. We said about two weeks per episode to do that. So 22 fees for 44 weeks. That was a good living. Now I'm working on a show, I have a show for Amazon. I am also going to work almost a year, and I'm getting eight fees. Hmm. My episodic fee, which used to cover two weeks of work, is being amortized over three or four, for some of us, five weeks of work, which means our effective weekly salary has gone way down from what it was. Our above-scale income, we talked about writers go minimum. All writers work at a, there's a minimum uh, amount of money a writer needs to be paid if you're an article, if you're a writer, a writer-producer. Um, that you need to be paid, and or if you're a story editor, executive story, or, or even if you're a staff writer, there's a different minimum. So there's a certain amount of money you, you need to be paid. But for producers, they normally work at, with that plus an above-scale amount of money. That's why writers could do reasonably well in television. But as you stretch our employment, our episodic fee over more and more weeks, we are all pushed down to minimum. And so at this point... About 51% of people at the producer level of, or higher at the Guild are actually working 
at Writers Guild minimum. Mm -hmm. What that means is that if I'm a co-producer, for example, and I'm working at or around minimum on a short season, I can look ahead to being a producer or a supervising producer or a co-EP and see my salary be essentially the same. I'm just going to work for more weeks for that. So writers' salaries have been depressed over this whole period of time, and that's, that's one of the critical issues that we're dealing with. Connected to that is the fact that the other ways we get we get paid by selling our scripts, writing scripts and selling them, or by the money that we get from reuse of those scripts, they have also not kept pace with what it, what the, the compensation used to be during the era of broadcast television. An era, by the way, when the companies made a lot less money and the world was a lot riskier for them because they needed a show to syndicate those studios for which we work um, in order to make a profit. Now they don't need to do that anymore. Netflix, Amazon, all of the different services mean they are simultaneously releasing or one at a time releasing their shows on a lot of different platforms and much of the risk has been taken out of the business. So more risk then, less risk now, but our fees for writing scripts or the residuals we get for basic cable or for most streaming services are a fraction of what they were on broadcast. And when you take all that stuff together, when you take the amount of money you make from sitting in a room and doing the writer's work, our episodic fees, and the money we make from scripts, and the money we make when you reuse them, that's no longer enough for many writers to actually make their year. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to make their year because... Good years have to pay for bad years in this business. I mean, you don't work. You spend, I don't know how many years. I probably spent four or five years before I got paid for the first time. There are years where you don't work the whole time. And we can talk about that as well. I want to talk about options and exclusivity because that's something else we dealt with. There are years in which you don't work at all. And then you end, you, your career doesn't last as long as some other career. You have to know that over the course of a career, those good years are going to pay for the bad years. Mm-hmm. But as those good years are capped essentially at minimum for so many of us, it's not possible anymore. The thing is it's unconscionable that the company should be making record profits and writer uh, writer compensation should be going down. That's the core of things. There are a few other things, but you don't want me to go on forever. You can ask questions (laughs) and I'll fill in. Well, okay, let's let's tackle this area. Okay, okay. And then we can spread out a little more. Um, A few few questions just right off the bat, but is this just an accounting issue? I mean, we heard about this for years about, like, I wouldn't say dishonest accounting from the studios or networks, but at least uh, improper accounting or accounting not being reported properly to the guild so that writers were not properly paid. Maybe this is more of a feature. Well, it's, not a, it's not an accounting issue at all. It is a contract issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a time in which all writers were paid weekly uh, at a weekly salary. That was replaced in the contract with the idea of an episodic salary at a time when episodes were going to be two weeks because you couldn't make more than, you couldn't work longer than two weeks and produce 22, 24, 26 episodes in a year that, and you couldn't do it for longer than a year because you needed to be on the air again and you needed the next season to start. So there was no reason to worry about the distinction between what an episodic fee and a weekly fee did. Now this episodic fee is the way that many, most of us get paid at the writer-producer level and our contracts actually have us working uh, many more weeks per, per episode. In fact, there are many places that essentially do this. They take the number of episodic fees, you, the, your episodic fee, they multiply it by the number of episodes you're doing, and they divide it by the minimum, and that's the number of weeks you work. Mm-hmm. They actually calculate your week's work mm-hmm. on what you're uh, yeah. getting you to minimum. So this, the floor has become the ceiling. Well, that, yeah, that was my next question, is <coughs> couldn't the AMTP... I said that right. Couldn't their response be, um, okay, so we'll go back to two weeks. We're not going to change 
what anyone gets paid, and we're not going to change the format. We're, but we'll, we'll go. We're not negotiating that. That's not a. We oh. don't negotiate above scale income. Mm-hmm. Above scale income is negotiated by your agent. We negotiate minimums. So what we are doing is talking about the term, uh, how long an episodic fee can can account okay. for. Um, the, our negotiation is about a limitation on the number of weeks that a company can assign an episodic fee to cover. That makes sense. I mean, it sounds it's one of the things we're doing. Yeah, the root right. of a lot of the issues, and I remember this from 10 years ago too, has been this sort of just sliding, taking advantage of the way things are and sort of the practicalities of the industry. I mean, that's what it feels like this is. It's like I don't think anyone set out to say – you're going to, you know, get a minimum over this many. I think weeks that's exactly right. Many. I think I think it's a bad business practice that the company has slid into. In the same way, by the way, as I'm not sure that anyone thought through entirely the implications of having options on us, mm-hmm. so that we would work for 25 weeks on an eight-episode show, mm-hmm. and then wait six months to find out whether that show is picked up for which we were paid not a penny. Yeah. So. Uh, by the way, again, not an issue in the 22-episode era no. because you stopped working in April, your show got picked up or didn't in May, and you started again in June. So We're essentially you, working on an outmoded right. model. Exactly. Uh, right. but I, you guys have had more experience in this, so please chime in. Um, I'm just curious. I, every time I've been hired on anything, uh, trying to get either a bump of any kind, like level or scale, I'm just... I'm just wondering, what is the communication like between these, whoever's negotiating for the AMPTP? Nailed it. Thanks. Um, and, and, and the actual people we end up talking to to negotiate what our salaries are, or the, I don't know, the people at the studio we develop with. It's, it's Because when you talk to them, they're like, I, yeah, I don't understand why we wouldn't give the writers, you know, so it's... I just wonder what this is. This like the Death Star, and everybody that we're actually dealing with in person is like a small light, of like a dot on it. Or because uh, the story is always poor mouth. The story every season for every show is always we don't have the money, we don't have the money, we can't like to the point where a showrunner will feel like they can't hire an extra staff writer who takes the least amount of money on a show because, or even a, another writer's assistant. So, and this is on like network shows they'll be like oh we don't have the money for that and i don't i don't understand if they're making record profits why squeezing in these small seemingly small things is an issue right i think you've hit on exactly the problem and and it's actually the reason why i think so many writers didn't even realize that there was money there to be to be had because they're constantly told on their own shows there is no money but here's the thing about budgets budgets are human made things they are designed to lower costs and increase profits. So when a show says, this is, you were spending X on a show and your writer's budget is X and there's not a penny more to be had, it's not because there is no penny there. It's just because they've allocated a certain amount of money to the writers. And unfortunately, in an era in which we're making this incredibly sophisticated product that's selling well, um, where budgets are actually going way up. I mean, you know, people are spending more and more money because the truth is we're making little movies every week a lot of times. Those budgets are expanding, the profits are expanding, and the amount of money they're paying writers is becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the overall budget. And, then they, and uh, there's no reason for it, um, but that is – but they do. They take – they take advantage of every opportunity they can to reduce labor costs. And it's not just in our industry. It's, it's what's yeah. going on across America is that you put downward pressure on labor costs and you increase your, mar- your profit margin that way. <clears throat> but at this point, 
those profits are just too high and the downward pressure is just too great. So as everyone returns to the table today, um, what's the other side's argument? Well, here's the thing. Here's the one thing I will not, I can't do. I apologize. I'm not going to make the other side's argument for them because I have two choices. I can undersell it or oversell it, and neither one of those is. Uh, but the basic strategy for them has always been to spend as little as possible. Sure. By the way, it's what it comes not, down to. Not, not an irrational strategy in general in a negotiation. But the truth is when a business is doing as well as it is, as ours is, it's it's – it, it's not an acceptable solution to say that that, that writers don't get their their fair share of the profits. That is employees. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't it, imagine any one of those people being held without being paid for six months. You know, <laughs> sure. told. Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of just the the options and you know the exclusive you know nature of contracts. I mean, how how much progress do you think we'll actually be able to make? Because I feel like. With every negotiation, that's been kind of an issue that's been brought up, and we're still kind of dealing with that issue yeah. now. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, how much movement do you think? Well, it actually started – the first time we talked about it was in 2014, three years ago, because we began to hear in these shorter seasons the, the word from our own members that it was becoming an increasing problem. By the way, anytime we go in with these um, these the, the demands that we have in a negotiation, the proposals they're based on things that our, our members have told us. And so, a couple of years ago, it began to be clear that options, particularly in exclusivity, were becoming terrible burdens on our members. So we went in and we actually made a little bit of progress in 2014. We established a system that put limits on how long someone could be held without being free to go get a second a job in the first position. But the other limit that was placed on it is that it didn't apply to writers over a certain income level. It was $200,000 went up to $110,000. In this negotiation, we're seeking to get, you know, to move forward on that in a bunch of different ways, and we'll see how that goes. It may be to raise the dollar total under which people are covered, um, the length of time someone's uh, held, any of those things. But um, but it, it, it is a relatively new phenomenon, and we have come to deal with over the course of the last two negotiations. It is a place where we've made, we've made some gains. But it, it goes hand in hand with the other side. If you're not making enough when you're working, then you really can't afford not to be working the other months of the year. One of the issues I've seen sort of on these writers' boards that are – that people have questions about yes. is, uh, for example, in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, something we have to talk about. Yeah, which, I mean, if you want to kind of give the broad strokes, then we can go into it. But I know, you know, writers are concerned, obviously, about different forms that the healthcare may take. Uh, and we've had, up until now, and hopefully continuing on, a terrific healthcare uh, system through through the union. So, so, again, what's being negotiated? And can you speak to what writers' concerns might be? Well, we're negotiating for – we're, we're asking for increased employer contributions to the health fund and the Benjamin fund, but principally the health fund because the health fund is under pressure for the reasons you would imagine. Healthcare costs are going up, mm-hmm. and they're going up at a higher rate per year than our contribution rate is going up. And so we're seeking these companies, our employers, who are doing particularly well, uh, to have them contribute more than they're currently contributing. Remember – one of the things is that our, their actual contribution weight is a little misleading because they only contribute on our minimums. In other words, if a, if a writer is doing better than that in television, um, that money is allocated to his or her producing services 
um, and therefore is not paid. Health and pension are not paid on that. It's one of the ways in which they pay a little bit less. So we're seeking we're seeking from the companies an increase in contributions. And have they given these increases in the past? Yes, they have given those oh. these increases in the past. We're we're looking we're looking for more because sure. it's an oh, year in which in which our health fund is ha, needs it. We've been in we've been deficit three of the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're healthy, but but the pressures on the health fund are constant, and you know may be greater and greater as the years go on. And we need we need more contributions, and so. That, that's the focus of this. Now, unfortunately, in the last, the, la- the end of the last negotiations, there were some rollbacks that were placed on the table on our ho- on health fund that um, are are unacceptable to us. Mm-hmm. But um, but we're going to find a way to move past that. <laughs> that's, that's great. So what? Again, it's all very confusing to me. Uh, the concerns yeah. that many writers have. But what do you see as those concerns about? Talking about institutes instituting different kinds of health funds or healthcare systems. Oh, I think writers are probably worried. I mean, that we do have a very good health plan, and yeah. there are all kinds of questions about. You know, we could. There are lots of things that can happen to a health plan. It could, you know, it could be a two-tiered health plan where people who contribute less get lower benefits. Um, it could be a plan with that treats our retirees or dependents differently. It could be a plan that charges more for copay or for drug benefits or for doctors who are outside of network. Um, and I don't want to get into the details of what is go- could happen to the health plan in over the long term, but we are committed, for example, to not making this a two-tiered health plan. Mm-hmm. That's not who we are. It's a, it is, we say, a Robin Hood plan where those who are doing better pay for those who are doing less well. We Almost everyone in the guild has been one and the other at some point yeah. in his or her career, and that's the way the plan works. It really is a, a terrific plan in that way. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about why you don't want it to be a two-tiered plan, you know, just for people who aren't familiar with the two-tiered plan? Uh, well, because I think the Writers Guild has a feeling that we're all in this together, yeah. that, that um, and we have good and bad years, and we go through periods of, of, of you know, much and of less, of shallow, fallow and, and of plenty, and that, and that we take care of each other. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Now, in terms of that, I mean, I've read on the site that they want to make cuts to the health care plan. Like, what are those cuts and, like, what effectively would that do? You know, those are dollar amounts and they're not specific yet. And so uh, – and that's all being negotiated. I mean, I, want, I, I don't want to get into the sure. details of where we are in the negotiation particularly because I don't think that's a you – know, And it's constantly changing, I'm sure. It, 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 um, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so these are two of the big issues we're dealing with. Are there are there others worth well, talking I think, about? Well, you know, I think the big ones are the short seasons, <clears throat> and that means the amortization of our episodic fees and limiting the amortization of our episodic fees. That includes options and exclusivity limits on people writers being held under option or being held exclusively um, when they're not writing. And uh, let me interrupt for one sec, but you know, without giving away the farm, what? <laughs> What is the ideal situation for that? What would you like to see happen? You know, that's a complicated question because what I would like to see happen is not what we're going to get in this right. negotiation. <laughs> I would like to see some relief for writers who are spending t- – who are, who are at risk of not being able to write again because they can't go seek a second job in first position. Mm-hmm. So – and for that to apply to as many people as possible and for the holds to be as short as possible – how that's going to play out in this negotiation, I cannot tell you specifically. I don't know. But uh, it is, again, considering everything we've talked about already, that it's not an unreasonable request or thought. No, I think, I think it is. I don't, I don't want to keep using the word unconscionable, but if you're a writer who's being paid minimum, 
There's not a penny set aside for holding you off the market for any period of time. So I don't know what argument can be made. You can make the argument that writers are central to the business and companies really need writers to hang around to be available when their shows are starting again. I completely understand that. What's hard to understand is why, if they're so necessary, they can't be paid for. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. So that's, so, that's so, the so short seasons is um, amortization of episodic fees. Um, it's it's options and exclusivity. Talking about slight adjustments in the MBA minimums proposals, so minimums schedule, so that they actually reflect the way people work nowadays these days because they're they're out of date as well. So that's one big issue. The second big issue is script parity. That is to say that a script, as we say, a script is a script is a script. It's the most valuable product in the business, and there is no reason any longer why scripts on basic cable or for streaming services should be paid a fraction of what they're paid on broadcast television. Uh, another part of that, by the way, is script fees for staff writers, because at this point, staff writers are often being held in that position for multiple seasons. They work in the room, they and they no longer have the ability to earn residuals the way they used to. You don't get a network rerun on your script, so you're not paid for your script, you don't get reasonable residuals, and Again, it, it's, it's, it's essentially, I mean, it's an unconscionable situation, unconscionable situation that writers should be asked to work essentially for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that sort of, you know, the staff writer position not being paid for, not getting a script fee, um, and sort of the, <laughs> the weekly salary of a staff writer, is that just a holdover from a different time of television? Well, it is, and, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly how it developed. I, I know in, in some number of years ago, you would hire a staff writer, and it would be a bit of a bonus. It's like in the era where we moved out of a lot of freelance writers, and putting somebody on staff um, for some number of weeks, a short period of time, was a huge step up. Um, and then they would move, he or she would move up to, to a story editor. They could almost uh, count on that. They, yes, I mean, if things yeah, were going turning. on. And remember, back then, if you were on a network, if you wrote an episode, even if you weren't paid for it, the rerun would essentially give you uh, almost what the script fee was. So you could, you know, that, that was a great leg up. Nowadays... It's not an extra little bonus we give to people. It's a required, almost required step in the process of moving up the ladder. And <clears throat> people are often held in that position for multiple seasons, short seasons. I can. Yes. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I wanted you guys to both speak to that. Uh, topic I wanted to get into through that, but I don't want to stop you. Yeah, no. So you do, you do that. You have, no, you have, you have measly residuals. Mm-hmm. And you just can't. It's just, it just becomes a way of treating people unfairly rather than giving them a leg up into, yeah. you know, into, into the business. And so we like, have moved yeah. to the point where what was once a good thing has become a bad thing. Yeah. And it feels like it is in part because things are so competitive now. I mean, they can fill those positions so easily right. that they don't have to give anyone anything. You know, and one thing I heard that when I was trying to move up the ranks is that there's such a big difference between staff writer and story editor, you know, story editor, not only because as a story editor you're making, you know, getting script payments, but even just the weekly salary mm-hmm. is so significant where some shows will just fire that person that was going to get the bump and then just hire staff writer because of the budget because they didn't have any other... Right. Or mm-hmm. felt like they didn't have any other recourse. Yeah, a friend of mine had kept jumping from show to show, and just because I don't, the shows wouldn't go, you know, and, or they wouldn't get a second season, and she had counted episodes by the time she finally made it to story editor. She'd been a staff writer for 80 some odd episodes of television, which a lot of the time it was that she should have been story editor, but 
she would be told, oh, it's, it's just not in the budget at all. We have the budget as staff writer, and so you can either take the job as staff writer or you don't have a job. Um, right. But uh, I don't know if you want to keep going or if I can, like, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had been uh, for a season, a full season at a network show, uh, full season in that it got a 13-episode order, uh, was a staff writer, and then uh, moved into a different network on a different show and was told, because I never worked for their network and because I hadn't done 22 episodes with them, that I had to be a staff writer again. So the following season, I wasn't bumped up to story editor again. They held this rule, and they still have this rule, you must complete 22 episodes in order to move up to the next level. So, Where they do 13-episode seasons. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, so I was a staff writer for two, two and a half seasons. Yeah. Finally got to start. I'm like... I'm on my third... Actually, I'm going to be going into my fourth season of the show, and I know they're going to tell me I should still be executive story editor, mm-hmm. um, which is a little crazy. It's like, that's... Anyway, yeah. And but one of the things that I wanted to bring up, and I don't know if we have anything in the negotiations related to this, is packaging. Um, I am suspicious of it. I think it's evil. <laughs> um, I'm just... I'm suspicious of it because both shows that I've been on have been packaged. And... Yeah. Um, I love my agents as people, but I understand their priorities are not with me, Um, and uh, I don't blame them for that. But I know you said that agents are the ones negotiating anything that's above scale, right? Mm -hmm. And every year I've had this issue of, hey guys, I, you know, I I think I should be a story editor, and they're like, you know, oh oh, man, it's too late to talk about it this year, but let's do, we'll talk about it next year, and then just come to find that it's, I believed it, but it's, it's horseshit. It's like they were never going to get me that bump or try. And what's funny is that uh, you know you t- I talk to my producers and they're like, no, the agents are supposed to do that. And then the agents talk to me and they're like, no, no, you know, it's just the studio couldn't do it this year, whatever it is. It, the, the blame is always somewhere else, and you get the runaround. And so it's this is like years of my career that I, I essentially it's it's a weird kind of arrested development. I can't. I'm stuck mm-hmm. in this. Circle. That I think the, the bigger question here is sort of about accountability, mm-hmm. right? Is how do we hold our employers accountable for, say, uh, this arbitrary rule that mm-hmm. they say you have to do 22 episodes before you can get and then the title bomb? For not, sure. They won't, their loyalty, I feel like, is more to the studio at this point, who they have a package yeah, with. There is that too, but. Um, I'd yeah, like to that, talk about that. that. Packaging is obviously is not an issue in this negotiation because it is not it, – it, it's, it's a question between us and the agencies mm-hmm. and not between us and the AMPTP. I think you have reason to worry about it. Yes. Um, let me say only this, which is one of the reasons why the short season problem is as tough as it is, is because agents have failed to defend our above-scale quotes. Mm-hmm. Right. They are – there's downward pressure – and, and they have not done a good job over the last 10 years or so of making sure that, that writers are paid what they once were paid and, or allowed to move up as they once moved up. And doesn't that affect what gets put into our health plan, like our contract? No, it doesn't, doesn't actually. Okay, it doesn't because it's at minimums. Okay. That's right, yes. Now, is there anything oh. in this current you know, cycle of negotiations talking about late payments? Because it's like, it's amazing to me that when you start a show, it could take two months for you to start. Yes, we've been trying. That's that's an enforcement problem and not a negotiation problem. And we've been trying to deal with that. The Guild uh, instituted a a program to deal with late payments uh, using the agent's 
you know, cooperation of the agents to try to, you know, to solve that problem. I know we're only starting to get there. It's a sep- it is a separate question. It's a question. I mean, I, I suppose it's possible that we could we could put something in the in the, in the contract that might deal with it. But it's, it's principally that you're already required to be paid on time, and there are penalties for not paying you on time. The question is enforcing that. I, yeah, because I, I find that I keep hearing that, that there are penalties, but I never see those penalties. No. Have been vigilant about, like, whenever I'm not paid on time, now I'm like, oh, I'm not taking this shit. Well, one thing is, by the way, is one thing one thing is that I want to say is for almost all of these things, for times when you think you're being treated unfairly, you should contact the guild because they may be violations of the NBA and the guild will do something about it. Remember, the guild doesn't know when you get paid. Right? We don't know if you've been paid late or not. We actually don't even know what your above-scale income is unless you send us your contract. Um, you're supposed to send your contract to the Guild, but most people don't do that. But if you find that you're being treated unfairly, you haven't been paid on time, and you let the Guild know, there, there are, there's a high rate of interest that's charged for companies that don't pay you promptly according to the contract. And this is sort of coming back to your initial explanation of what the Guild does, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... We're stronger together. You know, the people in the guild, they know the rules. They're here to take care of us who are members of the guild. Right. Um, and, and it's an interesting thing to me. I mean, just in 20 minutes, three writers have come up with different, a number of different issues that we're concerned about. I can only imagine what the negotiators walk into this room with, or even before negotiations begin, with the things that are important to the majority of members. Right. Uh, you know, how do you guys even, this is sort of a broad, you know, mm-hmm. sort of protocol question, but how do you even start to narrow that down and pick out what's important? Well, one thing that we did twice over the last couple of years is we sent out a survey to television writers, mm-hmm. the same thing for screenwriters. Mm-hmm. Um, and we asked questions. What's going on in the business? What are the biggest problems? How do you, what matters to you? What would you like to guild to solve? We got thousands of answers. About 50% of the people who were sent the survey in each of the two times responded to us, a huge number. And we, we went through those and we used what happened in outreach meetings and in the show visits and we began to identify what the, the trends were. By the way, our negotiating agenda, although we won't get all of this, is broader than what, what I'm talking about. It's broader than short season, scripty parity, and health uh, care. It also includes, for example, conversations about parental leave mm-hmm. um, and a whole, whole range of other things. So whether we get all those, as I said, is just a question of what happens in, in across the table. But you begin to see the trends, as we saw pretty clearly the trend over the last three years that these were the these were the principal issues what what a writers really care about where are their problems um you know where's what's the heart of what's going on with writers you know as they try to make ends meet that's without getting into specifics Mm -hmm. can you take us inside these negotiations meeting and tell us like what what is the atmosphere like what goes on? Are there bagels? Like, what, what, what happens in these meetings? Often there are bagels. Yes. yes. Um, are there good bagels, though? It's tough in L.A. Carbs don't help people think clearly. Yeah. Um, you know, they are they're respectful mm-hmm. and um, civil. You know, there's no... It, it, there's 
we have big differences, but there's no benefit to, to there are no screaming matches across the table. Um, what generally happens is there's a, you know, we, we sit on one side, it's actually a very long table mm-hmm. where the representatives of the companies are on one side and we are on the other, and there are back benches for both of us. And then, how, how many people are we talking about in these meetings? Oh, um, you know, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 people in the room, wow. depending on the day. I mean, the, the, the front table is smaller than that, obviously. Right. But And in turn, we each bring in, we have a pattern, we have a, a list of proposals that we, we want to address. We have ours, they have theirs. Those are exchanged before negotiations begin, so we know what the other side wants. Negotiations often begin with a kind of formal presentation that doesn't just that includes that, but an explanation mm-hmm. of those things, and then we begin to have conversations. For example, in the first week of negotiations, we had sessions where we talked in detail about the short season problem. We talked about um, health fund. We talked about parental leave. Uh, they had sessions where they talked about some of the things that are important to them. They have some technical issues sometimes where they want adjustments in the contract and they wanted us to understand those things. And then what's supposed to happen is the sides are supposed to begin to signal and then to remove from the table certain items that are not necessary to settle. We get closer and closer to our bottom line. You both know you're not going to get everything you want. That's what happened in the second week of negotiations. And in fact, in the second week of negotiations on the Wednesday of the second week, we made a proposal, a package proposal that took somewhere over 40% of our economic demands off the table. We did that and you are, you know, it's it's natural to do that to begin to say, okay, if we do we take some stuff off and you take some stuff off, we can begin to get closer to where we can reach an agreement. Unfortunately, on the Thursday of that week, the companies took a little bit of a step back. They made some small moves forward. They put in a rollback on healthcare and um, and did, had, at that point had not made put any hard dollars on the table for writers. Is this – and you've been a part of these negotiations mm-hmm. in the past. Is this an unusual tactic? You know, not in the broad sense. I mean, right. you, can, you can go forward or stand still. I mean, I think we were hoping that they would begin to move forward as we had. They were sending a signal to us that they were further away from reaching a deal. You can talk about what, that, what the, the, the purpose of that tactic was or not. In any case, we came back and said to them, we've made a big move. You have not moved. We're not making the next move because we, don't, we can't be the ones who are constantly taking things off the table and moving back to it. You want us to do that? We want you to do that. At that point, they said to us, don't bother coming back on Friday. That's the impasse that you all heard about. And so the negotiations broke off temporarily on that Friday. At that point, though, we put out a letter to the members to explain to them what was going on, and we indicated even in that letter that we were ready to go back to the table as soon as the AMPTP mm-hmm. was willing to. There was a bit of a skirmish for a few days about a he said, she said about where they accused us of walking out, which was not actually true. Um, but Can we that's, talk about that at some point? By the way, yeah. we can talk about it right so, now. Business. We're in so, it. Yeah. yeah. And, That's crazy. But eventually, over the, <laughs> over the course of the next few days, they made an offer to us to come back to the table. One of the reasons they did that, by the way, was because we also started a process in motion, which is a constitutionally mandated process, in which we go first to the negotiating committee and then to the Board of the West and the Council of the East and ask them to recommend that we take to the members a strike authorization vote. That was unanimously approved by the negotiating committee and then by the board and council. And so we have begun the process of moving toward a strike authorization vote. We should talk about what that means. Yes. Okay. So I just want to know the board of the West and council of the East 
Sounds like some Game of Thrones shit. Yeah. But what did you, did you have something you wanted to? Uh, I feel like, add? like it'll wrap in organically, okay. but it, it's just about what comes out, what you end up seeing in Deadline and Variety, and like sure. how it's it doesn't it doesn't seem to be accurate, or at least it's contested by a lot of people, a lot of people in the negotiating committee. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a you know there's a press blackout during the negotiations during the course of the weeks we're in the room and for good reason, because we need to we need to be able to move forward without beginning to to put in a in a, in a concrete and constructive way. And there's not much point in negotiating you know through the through the media. Once it ended, um, they thought they would get a tactical advantage by telling our members that we walked out. So our members would say to us, why would you do that? Why would you be one step closer to the possible strike without negotiating every day you possibly could? That's a, they understood what they were doing. Unfortunately, we actually had a voicemail from them that said, don't come in tomorrow. And, you know, um, and, and I think I said, and other people said, we know that it's not useful for our membership to hear the back and forth about, no, it's your fault, no, it's your fault. We want to get beyond that. But this is all... Without calling negotiating a game, there is a game-like element to this, which is who gets the advantage, the psychological advantage, who's actually making the next move when. So, Because you neither, neither side wants to be making all the moves and the other side not. So they played that card. Yeah. Do the, God bless. Do the games played in sort of the outward-facing games, do those impact what happens in the room? Yeah, that's... Well, they, they impact in this way. I mean, the, the conversation, uh, the real conversation is who is going to, who is going to begin to move forward sure. with the negotiating agenda. And our argument would be we have made an enormous move forward. At some point, that's going to have to be matched by a move on their part. They can't sit still and come back to us and say, okay, move again. Move again. Why don't you move again? Move again. Give up more. Give up more. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Um, so that's in, in a sense that it does impact it in that way. Let's move on beyond that for yes. a second. So we began this this process moving toward a strike authorization vote. Now it's been unanimously approved by the by the negotiating committee and the board and council. We've alerted the membership that there will be meetings on the 18th and 19th, and that voting will start at those meetings and will continue for about a week or so. So what does that mean? A strike authorization vote is not a vote to strike. Um, it's not a vote to strike. Right. Just want to make it clear. Let's make that not, clear. Because not just getting that vote, email, it is not yeah. a vote. It is not a vote to strike. It is a vote to empower the leadership of the guild to have the option at the moment of contract expiration to call for a strike if what's on the table is is insufficient to bring back to the members. It is the power that we have to go back to the table, and and actually make the best deal. It does not mean a strike is inevitable. I think that the more writer power is brought to bear, the less likely a strike is to happen. We, but I can't say either that a strike is an impossibility. Sure. We're asking for the, the, we're asking you to support your guild at this mm-hmm. point, is to say, give us, give us the strength, your strength, to go to the table and ask for the things that you told us you wanted. Yeah. And with that, we can put some pressure on the companies. Well, and then to be clear, I mean, like say, you know, when May 1st hits, and you're still in the middle of negotiations. That it, we don't automatically just go on strike on May first. It's like if you're negotiating in good faith, those negotiations will just you, continue. You on. could, you could absolutely right. do that. You could absolutely do that. Like, I think yes. a lot of people with the fears just like they just feel like you know midnight at one at May first. Yeah. If there's not it's a like, deal in place, right? Right. That's automatically going to strike. That's just really depending on how the negotiations are going and, and using that as. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And whether what's on the table at that point is worth bringing back to the membership or not, um, absolutely. But. 
As I said, you know, the only way we've ever gotten anything in this guild of big things that we care about, our residuals, our health and pension plan, our ability to determine credits, our jurisdiction over new media is through the powerful action of collective action of writers. Well, no, I think uh, David Slack sent out an email this week that basically talked about all the different things that the union has been able to get over the course of a strike. And for me, that was just very useful to kind of... Yeah. To read and to hear, like breakdown. you know, they have that yeah. breakdown. Right. Yeah, it was painful. Yeah, it was this, but because they did it in the sixties, I now how have really because good some of the people that are the loudest voices are mm. people who just, you know, so they want look. It, a strike is hard. Nobody wants it, but uh, they talk about what they lost the last time right. without talking about what they gained or right. what what they have, what they even had up until that point, because people have. Struck mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but a question that I have I've been reading that the percentage of uh, yeses that we get is matters. That, that mm-hmm. the percentage of yeses for the authorization um, either shows. Right. Uh, well, first of all, I had a question because I kept reading that it shows the companies that uh, the, the guild members are behind their negotiating committee and that we fucking mean it mm-hmm. and, you know, that we're willing to go on strike. And I, I started wondering, is this accurate? And then also, how do they know what percentage voted yes and, and do we share that information? And I, I don't know. I was very curious about – I've been reading. Sure. I mean, first, yes, the percentage does matter. A strong strike authorization vote that suggests that we can mount an effective strike if we're not responded to properly, of course, puts the kind of pressure on the companies to do what we want. And a weak strike authorization vote is go, does the opposite. So a weak one could get us a yes on the authorization, but it would show the companies that maybe people would cross the picket line? Or? No, I, you know, I, I can't get into – I don't want to get into, like, what would happen in a strike if okay. X percentage said yes. The more people in the guild who say we're behind you – the more powerful the guild. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to what you were saying earlier, Chris, which is, yeah, what 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 the negotiators are asking for, what the negotiating committee is asking for, is for the members to get behind the committee and say exactly. we're on the exactly. same page. Right. We, we support everything right. that's being asked for. So the right. higher the percentage of yes, the more they're seeing that yes, this is actually right. what the members want. And yes, we will release that number because we're 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 a transparent union, yeah. and because if you say you're not going to release the number, it sends a signal that you don't want to send anyway. <laughs> so you're not kidding anybody. So yeah, I think it I think it matters very much. And uh, look, everyone knows our people. No one gets 100% support for anything, and certainly not in the writer's guild. They're not going to get 100% support. (laughs) They have a lot of opinions. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, you sort of hit on it, and I think it's probably worth talking about a little bit, is what we got from strikes, and particularly what happened in the strike of 2007 and 2008, Mm -hmm. because that's obviously in a lot of people's minds. And as you said, there are a lot of people who have stories about how the strike hurt them. Mm -hmm. And it did, unfortunately. It hurt. A lot of people we have, you know, we're not like other guilds or other unions. We don't all have the same. We don't share the same economy. Yeah. You know, we all have personal economies. Some of us will be struggling when the, at the by the moment when the question of a of a strike comes up. Some of us will be doing extremely well. Some of us will be right at the verge of doing extremely well. It will affect us differently. So there are people who get hurt in strikes, like in a war. But as you said, the, the question is collectively, what is the meaning of what we get all together? So just imagine, for example, 
you know a couple of things. Well, you know the companies don't give you anything you don't, you don't fight for. So we are sure that the companies would never have turned around one day and said, you know what? We'd like you to be paid adequately for work on new media. We'd like to actually pay you residuals and make sure that's covered for pension health. They would never have given that to you. Right? We had to fight for it. Now think about what it's like now when 15% of our members already are working for Netflix and Amazon and other streaming services. When the residuals we get from that, 15%, when that wow. is our second largest and fastest growing residual, now imagine 10 years from now as the business begins to move further and further toward streaming, what it would be like if we were not covering writing on that. What would it be like if, if, you, if a show was pumped into your house via cable, you'd get paid a certain amount, but not over the internet or your telephone, right? Well, what it kind comes of a world back to that, that scripts are scripts question. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. All, all the writing is still writing. I remember right. the story being in 2008 from the companies that, well, we don't know what's don't happening know. with new right. media. Yeah. It's, it's uh, and, and yeah, and now. To the day after the strike settled, they launched Hulu. They knew, <laughs> they knew right? exactly. Well, I mean, they didn't know exactly, but they had a really good sense of what was coming. Just, you know, when I think about the cost of not getting what we're fighting for, the cost to all of our writers of seeing income go down 23% or some percentage year after year after year, what that means over the course of one writer, then 100 writers, then 1,000 writers' careers, what that could mean, what it means to the next generation. That's what we're fighting for here. That's what we're arguing for. And one question I had, I mean, because on the list when I was looking at the website, it's like expanding the definition of professional writer to include new media. And I, mm-hmm. I, can you expand that on that a little bit? Because, I, I mean, does that... That's a very small... It's a, it's a small thing, and, and, and we're going to make progress in that. So I mean, I but think, you mean that that's not including, like... Writers that are on Amazon or write on Netflix shows, they're already no, they're, included. Correct? They're already included. It's for yeah, these yeah, ones yeah. that fall through the, cl- through right. the, the crack, like a YouTube right. yeah, show. Exactly, or yeah, something small, very small. Right. small. So, okay. what do they need to do um, to be called a professional writer? Now, one thing is that we have to acknowledge that a lot of people claim a lot of things about the strike of 2007 and eight, and I, we talked about this on our outreach. It corresponded, unfortunately, with the Great Recession, right. with the collapse of the DVD market with the rise of tentpole movies. There are all kinds of things that coincided with that that the strike gets blamed for. Strangely, it doesn't get blamed for the fact that in the 10 years since then, the business is better than it's ever been before. There are more writers working, and there are more shows than there have ever been. The golden era of our business happened uh, after the we don't get. It doesn't get the credit for that. And the truth is, as I've often said, it doesn't deserve the credit or the blame. For it, it's the that, thanks Obama of our <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I would just uh, two quick things. I would direct uh, listeners, especially if they're in the WGA, uh, to listen to an episode that we did last July with David Goodman and David Slack, who we talked specifically about the right. 0708 strike um, and what was gained by it. Right. And to your point earlier. Consider if we hadn't done it. You know, no one was coming and saying, please take these things, take these streaming deals and take this. Mm-hmm. Think about what we wouldn't have in those, these past 10 years without that strike, which was, at that point, our only negotiating tactic. Right, right. I do want to ask um, to you, and well, again, we, we can keep this brief because we have sort of covered it, but what were the big gains from that strike? You know, what and what are... Conversations we kind of don't have to have anymore in the same way because of this. Well, we have jurisdiction over media. So we get, you get, you have, there's, depending on for whom you are writing, there are minimums. 
and residuals and it's pension, you know, it's fringeable. You get all of those things. Um, you know, we are now, as I said, we're getting our, our residual from that is our fastest growing and second largest residual. And 15% of our writers are writing for those companies and are covered, have minimums because of that. So we didn't have that the day we went on strike and we had, we got that the day we settled. And there's no way they would have given it to us. And if you don't believe that, look at how much money you get from DVDs, right? Or look at, or look at what happened to animation writers who work in feature animation who are not covered by the, D, the WGA but were covered by another union that can't get those things for them. Those people will never, we will never get back those things we didn't fight for. And they will never be able to achieve those things. You only get what you fight for. What message can we give to both the members uh, and anyone else? I mean, it's a tough time for artists to strike. You know, we, we live in complicated times, to put mm-hmm. it mildly. And uh, in this sort of outward-facing way, we might be looked at as unsympathetic. Well... I mean, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of assumptions in all of that, so we just talk yes. about them one at a time. First of all, these are tough times. One of the reasons why the times are tough is because capital has been able to, to essentially triumph over labor. <laughs> and, um, and the struggle of hu- people who work to be adequately compensated and well-treated for their work is one of the great struggles of the last century. It is central to that American dream that we talk about, what it means, why we believe that it's a country in which you can make something of yourself. It is not, in, it is not clear to me at all why our, our desire to be treated that same way is in any way inconsistent with that. It is wholly consistent with everything else. Our, ba- our fight does not detract from other fights. It does not detract from the fact that this is a world in which increasingly people who are power, less powerful are taken advantage of by those who are more powerful. It's not an either-or thing. So it seems and to me that our fight is the same fight. Yeah. Now, is it true that, compared to other people, writers are reasonably well-paid? Yes, that is true. The thing that we understand inside this business, first of all, is that's a little misleading because... My or a writer's annual salary needs to take care of more than his or her good year. It needs to take care of, as I said, all the years they made nothing trying to become a writer, worked as an assistant or whatever it was. All those years when they were a story ed- uh, where they were staff writers and they barely made enough to get by. All the years in the middle of their career where they're not being staffed, or the seasons in which their show gets canceled. Or conditions. Yeah. Well, right. You know. So when you. My brother was like shitting on me for how much I was able to save this year because it was, you know, he thought we were having a political argument. And then he said this, and I was like, dude, you know I work for six months out of the year, right? I save because I'm afraid the rug could be ripped out from under me. And even if my show, like, you know, that six months I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there in first position for that show, I don't know if the show's going to come back. So then I have to, you know, anyway, that's what's not understood. Right. I think writers, here's the thing, I think writers need to not be ashamed of, uh, of what they have. This is the most most lucrative export America has, uh, our entertainment. We created $51 billion of value from our work. I think we live in a world, if you build a better mousetrap, you get paid for that mousetrap, not just the person who puts it on a shelf. Right. The shelf does not get all the money from the mousetrap. We made things that, are, that, that people love and can't do without. 
and the idea that we should somehow feel bad about the fact that we are saying we want our fair share, not even more than we used to have, but somewhat like the same thing as we used to have 10 years ago. I don't know why anyone should be ashamed to ask for that. There are going to be people on the outside, we know, who are going to say, oh, wealthy writers, they don't care, cushy lifestyle, we don't, we don't understand that. And we're going to have to withstand that should we get to the point in which we actually do have to take a work action, something we're far away from at mm-hmm. this point. But I, I think internally, the, ones, the people who count are the people inside the guild. And we need to understand that what we're fighting for is worth fighting for. Uh, I have to say, most of these arguments that say we should give this up, I don't understand. I mean, what good do we do anyway? if we're paid insufficiently for our work. What good does it do for anyone if writers have to drop out of the business because a couple of bad years means they have to sell their house and leave? How does that help people who are less well-paid? How does that help anyone less fortunate in this country to do that? Why is it better that companies that made $51 billion headed by CEOs who made 30 and $40 million, whose salaries alone would take care of most of these problems, why are we looking at ourselves and begrudging ourselves a fair share of the value we created? Yeah, and that's the best argument I could ask for. Um, do you want to speak any more? Because I know this is people's biggest concern, and I don't know if we've hit it hard enough about the possibility of a strike, how that's being used, um, what people can expect in the next month. Uh, well, as far as getting word from sure, from sure. I mean, two things are happening simultaneously. Yeah. We're going back to the table on Monday. We have a week's negotiation schedule, and maybe beyond that, we will be willing to sit at the table every single day, straight through. At the same time, we're asking for we're, we're instituting a strike authorization vote. We're asking the members to give us the power to call a strike if need be on the day when the contract when the contract expires, or beyond that, if for some reason we extend it. A yes vote on that, support of your union, is the power we need to bring writer, uh, writer influence to bear at the bargaining table. Take that away, and you're going back to the table like Oliver Twist saying, please, sir, may I have some more? Um, and you know what happens when you, when you do that. So what I have to say to our members is the companies can afford it. They've made $51 billion. We deserve it because our, we, we created that value and our income is, is plummeting. And the way we get it, the best way we get it, is to stay strong as a union. I'm asking people at this point to support their guilds, east and west, and give us the strength to go back on their behalf and get what they deserve. Um, but I, I promise, on behalf of all of us, that we will do everything in our power to make sure that the thing none of us wants, a strike, comes to be. Yeah. That's no one's goal. Yeah, I think that, that is that is really the best way to put it. Um, listen, you guys, do you, do you guys have any more questions, any concerns you want to talk about? Nothing. And then in that case, we'll wrap up in a lighthearted and fun way. Um, you guys are all in television. Let's talk about what you are watching on television right now, what you are enjoying, what you're talking about with your room. <laughs> listen, you're very busy. You have a show going on. You're negotiating enormous contracts. Yeah, yeah. Have you watched any television? I watch almost no television right now. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. Although I did see, I love Fleabag. Did you see Fleabag? That's a good one. Oh, my yeah. God. I really love Fleabag. So... What is that? I'm like, it's like... You don't even know what it is. is. No, what is my you see, this is why <laughs> script is a script. Right, what is Fleabag that? Fleabag is so Good. Oh my god! It's an impressive comedy. It's like it's this British chick. Anyway, she, it's so fucking. It's on Amazon. It's available on Amazon right now. You gotta watch it. And it's only like six episodes. It is, right? yeah. and it's oh god, it's so good. 
Um, <laughs> I'm watching Legion, yeah, which is right? amazing. Yeah. Uh, and well, it took me a while to recognize that he's the dude from Downton Abbey. Yeah, like, isn't that amazing? <laughs> and, and the Beast. And the Beast. It's so great. And then uh, 13 Reasons Why is. Pretty it's a great. Good? It's it's yeah. really good. All right, um, I'll check it out. Yeah, lots of stuff. Good answers, Mikey. Uh, what do you want? Legion. Yeah. Watching that. Um, Legion so, is changing everything. Yeah, by the way, like I feel like it's changing how we tell stories. I need to see yeah. how much they're describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty fantastic for me. The Americans. Absolutely. And just finished Black Sails, unfortunately. That, that ended this mm-hmm. year. But oh, yeah. yeah. I just finished up on that. Nice. Those are my big These are good answers, you guys. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, Chris, thank you for taking the time. Good luck next week. Thank you very much. Thank our our future is in your hands. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> thank, thank you so much. You're welcome. Now leaving Nerdist.com.